I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. All right, so we're going to start now our verse-by-verse study of the book of Romans, starting now Romans 1, verse 1. Last week we did an overview of Romans, and if you uh, didn't get to listen to that, I recommend you go check it out uh, on YouTube because there's a perspective when you just look at the whole book in one day that is really interesting and, uh, and see the flow chapter by chapter. It really pulls it together in a fresh way. I think it's really useful. Uh, but now we're going to do that slow verse-by-verse methodical study because Romans is jam-packed with amazing stuff. And it really truly is. It's not like you have to dig to find something that's not there. It's just there's so much that's there. We, of course, will not um, be able to get everything out of the book, uh, but we will get what we can. And uh, and what I want to do first, though, is just read this passage. Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 16. We're just going to read straight through it to get it into our hearts and minds. And then we're going to go back over it more slowly. So here we are, Romans 1, 1. It says, Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and also for the Greek. All right, so let, let's let's go back over verse 1, and let's just see how far we can get today. <laughs> I mean, I'd like it if I can get to verse 16, but we'll see if time allows um, so Romans 1, 1, it says, Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle separated to the gospel of God. Um, he's a bond servant first. Notice that that's actually the first thing he does. He introduces, Hey, it's me and Paul and I'm a bond servant of Christ. That, that just means a slave. Literally he's, I am his slave. I am the slave of Christ. And this is, um, this is a, a boast for believers in, in Jesus, that we are his slaves. I am the servant of Jesus Christ. In fact, in Christianity, it's so interesting how someone says, boy, you have, you're such a servant. You have such a servant's heart. And this is seen as a high compliment in the Christian worldview, right? Because you're like, man, wow, you're a servant. You serve others and you, you get down and put others' needs above your own. And, and above all, we put the, the, uh, 
the priority of Jesus above all others and above all other things. So he's a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, some people would say, but wait a minute, don't you, Mike, I know the song. It says, I'm a friend of God. He calls me friend. And Jesus, Jesus said, and this is true. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants. You know, I've called you friends. That's true. I've no longer called you servants. In other words, he doesn't interact with us like some like slave owner, right? He interacts with us as though we're his friends. He treats us like we're friends, but I'm still his servant. So his attitude towards me is that of a friend, but I'm still his servant. I, am, I still serve Christ. I'm under him. I'm not on the level with Jesus. Like me and, you know, Jesus is my bro. No, <laughs> he's my Lord. He's my Lord. And that's the truth. Now, <clears throat> He goes on, he says, uh, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to point out at the beginning here of Romans that when you see the word Christ, this is not, as you know, Jesus' last name. We all know his last name was Smith. Um, so, no, his, he didn't have a last name. There was, he was Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus, son of Mary, someone would call him. Um, they didn't really call him son of Joseph because, well, it was virgin birth or some unbelievers would, would say they were unsure as to who the dad was. But... Christ is actually a very important title in Judaism. It's the, it's the Hebrew word Messiah, Mashiach. And the Messiah is, is in Greek, the Christ. Same exact word. There's no difference between the two. It's like when you're singing songs and some say, hallelujah. And then another one says, alleluia. And you go, if you're like me, you're like, which one's right? Like, I've wondered that. I'm like, wait, is it hallelujah or hallelujah? Well, hallelujah is the Hebrew way of saying it. Hallelujah is the Greek way of saying it. It's the same thing either way. Well, Christ is Messiah, which is a Hebrew term for the anointed one. And especially in Jesus's time, it had been really entrenched in Judaism. That this term Messiah was referring to like the one, the ultimate deliverer who would come, who was prophesied in the Old Testament, whose prophecies about this were, this Messiah were scattered in the Old Testament and someone would come fulfill it. So when every single time it says Jesus Christ, there's a massive claim about who he is. Every time it says Christ, every single time, a massive claim that he is the one to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies. That he is the one to, to do the things that God has foretold would be done. So just know that because um, it's, it's so frequent. It's so frequent that Christ almost becomes like a name, but it's really a title. <coughs> Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. The anointed one. Now, I think that Paul um, introduces himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and he doesn't do it to look good. He could say Paul the apostle, but he says apostle afterwards. First, he introduces himself as a slave. I don't think he does it for false humility. I think he does it because more important than his apostleship is his servanthood to Christ, is I'm a slave of Jesus. That's the number one thing about me is I am a follower of Christ. And it seems to me that every true Christian kind of knows this in their gut. And, it, and there's, there's like a, a sense of health. You're like, yes, I'm just Jesus' servant, man. That's what I am above all else. Like, oh, I'm, hi, I'm Mike. I'm a pastor. But way more important than that. Before and after that, I am the servant, the slave of Jesus Christ. And that puts everything else in perspective. It really does. Um, it, it, you know, no Christian should walk up and say, do you know who I am? I'm a slave of Christ because <laughs> it brings me down. It brings me in humility so I, I might follow him. But then he goes on to say he's called to be an apostle. So he's not ashamed of the fact that he, he really is an apostle. And there's nothing wrong for him to say, yes, I'm an apostle. Uh, the word apostle or apostolo, it's a Greek word that just means sent out. That's what the word means, to send out. Um, but the term apostle 
just like Messiah means more than anointed one, it means the guy that fulfilled all that Old Testament stuff, um, apostle means more than sent out. It came to mean like those who were selected by Jesus to authoritatively bring the gospel to a new people, and then that gospel became this unchanging, eternal message of the fullness of, of what God has done for our salvation, um, now recorded here in our Bibles. So it, it literally, uh, Paul, as an apostle, had a life, unlike most of us, that was devoted to going out, teaching the gospel to a new group of people who'd never heard it before, authoritatively giving them these, these truths they didn't know before, and then doing it again somewhere else, and doing it again somewhere else, and doing it again somewhere else. It's similar to evangelism, but it's different, because they brought the gospel for the first time to the world, in its fullness. Um, so, he, this is why I think he says at the end of verse 1, I'm separated to the gospel of God. I don't think this is saying that we're all separated to the gospel of God the way Paul was. Or else we're all really failing. Right? Because how many of us are doing this? And I don't mean the job of evangelism. We're all called to, to evangelize. I'm talking about Paul's particular calling. Paul would write to the Corinthians later, and he's like, it's, there's like the don't make me go back there passage, right? Where he's like, I will come. I will come with my apostolic authority. And I will come and deal with your problems, but I don't want to. I want to speak to you and have you respond and do what's right. Like, I can't, you know, go right to some church and tell them that. You know, hey, you guys, this is not right. Don't make me go back there. I'm not going <laughs> to, no one's going to listen to that. So instead, I just, I just have a much more limited scope. But the, the scope of the authority of an apostle was much, much greater. And uh, I do not think modern day apostles uh, have this place. Although we've talked about that at another time. And if you have questions, I could always take it after the study about that. But this was a special thing for the 11 plus Paul in particular that had this particular calling, it seems. Um, so he's separated to the gospel. Um, that Not only is it to the, to the gospel part, but the separated part grabs my heart because you can't, you can't really be devoted to serving God unless you separate yourself from some other things. There's some stuff that I have to cut myself off of if I'm really truly going to serve the Lord fully. And I know this because as a Christian, follow me if you can here, there's times where there's things that might enter into your life and you, you really feel like this is just like sucking the spiritual life out of you, even whether it's necessarily evil or not. But it just makes it so you don't feel like you're separated to the Lord quite the same way. And I think that this is, this is a reality. I'm separated. So Paul's whole life changed. When he came to Christ and started preaching the gospel, he was literally separated from several people, from colleagues, from friends, from family. Uh, he had deep core values that totally changed in his life. He never thought the same ways again. Um, his purpose of his life changed and the meaning of his life changed. And the, of course, his destiny changed as well, but he was a totally different guy. We have some reason to think that Paul may have had a wife who left him because of the gospel. We know he's single later on, but we have good reason to think because he was a Pharisee that he was likely married in order to do that. Um, so what happened in between? Uh, possibly it was a, she left because of the gospel. It's just a guess. It may have happened that way. So then he goes on after talking about how he's separated to the gospel of God. Uh, then in verse 2, he then starts talking about the gospel of God. So he's staying on topic here. Follow the flow of thought, right? Verse 2, which the gospel, God, he promised before through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. <laughs> who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by re the resurrection from the dead. Man, do you get the, you get the idea of these jam-packed sentences? There's so much in here. 
Well, the first thing it says is that this gospel was promised before through God's prophets. And that's really important to Paul. And I don't want us to miss this. In fact, that'll be a lot of what we talk about today is how the gospel was promised ahead of time. And um, I want us to see the value of this because it's, it's timeless and really important, actually. Uh, notice that it was God who promised through his prophets. So Paul, writing about the Old Testament, he calls the Old Testament God's promises. What the prophets wrote were the promises of God, not the promises of man. Not man's opinions about God, but it was the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. That's a consistent thing. He also wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16, here's a good memory verse for us, right? All scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And it goes on that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. So this word inspiration, it means God breathed, actually coming right from the Greek. It's a really interesting word, breathed by God. And of course, breath and spirit in Greek and Hebrew are kind of like, I don't mean to talk too much about languages, but they're, they're sort of mixed. The, terms, the term for breath and the term for, for spirit are the same term in Hebrew and in Greek. Whereas we have different words for them in English. But so when you say it's God-breathed, that's why it's like Holy Spirit-inspired. These scriptures are from God. That's why he calls them the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures. The Holy Writings, or as we call them now, the Holy Bible. <laughs> because Bible, of course, means book. So it's really the same type of thing. Now, I want you to imagine for a second, Paul the Apostle, before he was Paul, he's Saul. He, uh, how does he feel about Christians? He hates their guts, okay? He hates Christianity. He sees it as a, an evil, evil thing in the world, and he wants to destroy it. He's actually said he was trying to destroy Christianity. He gets up on his, on his, uh, his, his path of destruction. He goes into Christians' homes, drags them out kicking and screaming, commands them to deny Christ. If they don't, then they'll go into prison or maybe something worse will happen to them. If they do, he'll let them go. And then something happens. Now, this guy, Saul, he knows the Bible, the Old Testament. He knows it very, very well. He's a Pharisee. He, I mean, he, he knows it probably better than any of us in the room. But something happens. He comes to Jesus Christ. Jesus reveals himself to him on the road to Damascus. He gets saved, and for three days he's blind. And I, I just imagine for three days, I mean, could you imagine how much thinking he did? He's like, Jesus really is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And he starts sort of loading in his mind Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. He starts loading the scriptures in his mind, and he starts to see, wow, Abraham offered his son on Mount Moriah where where he said that was where God would provide. Wait a minute. In Psalm 22, you know, and he's like, wow, that's, that's exactly like the crucifixion of Jesus. And he starts to like go through his own journey of discovering these Old Testament things he'd already known, but didn't understand that that was Jesus all the time. I can just imagine his eyes being opened. Um, he saw the gospel in the Old Testament. And that's what he's saying when he says the gospel, which God promised beforehand through his prophets. He's here claiming that the gospel is in the Old Testament, not just the new. It's in the Old Testament. Throughout the rest of the book of Romans, he's going to teach us the gospel from the Old Testament. And that's one of the things in Romans that a lot of people miss when they read it, is they're getting the Old Testament preached to them in the light of Christ. And it's really a really neat stuff. And we'll, we'll point that out as we're doing it. Um... In the, uh, in the uh, evidence for the Bible series that I've been doing Sunday nights, um, 
and I'll have another video coming out or another teaching on that eventually once I get it prepared on archaeology. But in that series, we did uh, several weeks on prophecy, and you're welcome to go check those out. Uh, they're all online, and they're all free, and watch them, and, and hopefully that's a blessing to you. So I did a bunch of weeks on this about Jesus in the Old Testament, but, but those were just certain prophecies that I would use to sort of prove the Bible. But once you've, once you've come to the place of realizing Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament, now you can go back and read the Bible like Paul did in a whole new way. Let me just look for the foreshadowings of Christ and the message of Christ throughout the Old Testament. And I've done a little bit of that in the past, but I think maybe one of these days on Sunday nights, I'd love to do a Jesus in the Old Testament series, like just start in Genesis and, and just move, take our time moving through. Just like, like I imagine Paul did when he went back through the Old Testament and found Christ. Uh, I think that's so neat. That's so neat. But we will get to hear some of that in the book of Romans. Um, for those types of things, uh, I'm going to clarify something on prophecy. Prophecy is, of course, it's the foretelling of events. But it's more than that. It's not just telling you what will happen before it happens. It's also telling you what those things mean. It tells you what the events mean. What, and that's, for instance, uh, Ezekiel 26 talks about the destruction of Tyre. It foretold the destruction of Tyre. Um, but, but, okay, but what does that mean? Well, that means that the God of Israel is really God. Like, there's, there's something that this means. This means that God will, will judge even secular nations for the things that they're doing. Uh, it has meaning to it. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, they, they prophesy of the death and resurrection of Christ, but they also tell you what it means. Isaiah really gets into detail about how he is bearing our sin on that cross. So prophecy, this is what I would call like theological prophecy, where I'm not only going to tell you what happens, but I'll tell you what it's going to mean. So that, that's exciting. Um, and that's often missed by people. Um, and so for this, I want to pause for a minute and just talk about the prophecies foretold the promised Messiah and how Jesus fulfilled it, because we can, we can miss how amazing this is. Pause for a second and think about how you have your Old Testament being written. And then there's this long delay where they call it the silent years. I mean, God wasn't silent, but there wasn't new scripture being written. And for four, approximately 400 years, there's nothing. There's no scripture being written. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. Have you ever wondered why God did it that way? Why didn't Jesus just show up right after Adam and Eve? Like, why didn't he just show up right away, die, die on a cross, and then we'd immediately be in the Christian era? I mean, it seems to me to be better in the, Christ, in the Christian era than to be in the pre-Christ era. Why not? Well, because there is prophecy, then there's 400 years delay, and then Jesus shows up assuring you of who he is. You see, prophecy proves who Jesus is. And, and I'm not just saying this myself. This is what Jesus said. Turn uh, to John chapter 5. And let's look at this. We'll look at a few verses in John. John chapter 5, starting in verse 31. Where Jesus is saying that the prophecies are confirming who he is. I mean, without this, think about this. Any Joe Schmo could show up and say, hey, I'm the deliverer. And how do I know the real one from the fake one? Well, John chapter 5 talks about this. John 5, 31. Jesus says, and if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. I think you can understand this uh, in context to mean if, if I just show up and say, hey, I'm, I'm the one. Well, that's not enough. That doesn't make it true. That's not enough to, to prove it. Let's read on. 
Verse 32, there is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. <clears throat> you have sent to John, and he's borne witness to the truth. Yet I did not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. So Jesus is like, I didn't need John to tell me I'm the Messiah, but, but you have his witness. You, uh, John's a confirmed prophet. Now, now for us, 2,000 years later, you're like, okay, John witnessing to you doesn't really impact me that much because all that happened before I was around. To them, it would have had more of an impact, right? But let's read on. Uh, he was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. And then he goes on, verse 36, but I have a greater witness than John's. So John the Baptist was a witness to who Christ was, a forerunner to go before to confirm who he was. But there's a better witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Okay, so Jesus' works do. But the reason why Jesus' works witness of him are twofold. One, because when he does amazing miracles in the name of God, well, that, that proves that God's on his side. But there's another reason. The very things he's doing were foretold hundreds and hundreds of years before. So they're seeing the fulfillment. They're seeing the proof that this is, in fact, God. Let's read on. He says in verse 37, And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. What God testified of him? In the Old Testament. Then he goes on. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. And then he explains how God testified of him. It wasn't through the hearing of God's voice directly. It was verse 39. You search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. For I do not receive honor from men. But I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I've come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive, uh, like a false messiah or a false religion. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you'd believe me. For he wrote about me. This is huge. <clears throat> but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus says, hey, you just watch me and then go look at the Old Testament scriptures and tell me that I'm not the one. That's what he's saying. There's a forerunner. Christ has the forerunner of the entire Old Testament. Also at the moment he had John the Baptist for that generation as well. Then again, in um, <clears throat> Luke chapter 16, we have a passage where uh, Jesus tells a parable about Lazarus and the rich man and Lazarus dies and he's there in Abraham's bosom and he's being comforted. And then they're having a conversation about the people who are still alive. And they're like, Send la raise Lazarus up and then they'll believe. And here's how it goes. Abraham responds to this with, no, 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 no. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have Moses and the prophets. That's enough evidence for Christ. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. The implication is that if you stand and stare in the face of prophecy, and you see the fact that God has foretold these things, and then the fulfillment of it through Jesus, 400 years later, over 400 years in most cases, and you ignore and deny that, there's a hardness of heart there that will not be overcome through the miracle that you say you, if you see that, oh, if I see this, then I'll, I'll change. Well, maybe not. Now, <clears throat> let's contrast this, because I think it'll, it'll show us how cool it is. Because <laughs> other people have come after Jesus, and they've been like, hey, I've got a new revelation from God. And then they, they'll try to launch off the Bible into their new revelation. Muhammad is an example of this, right? 
I got the new revelation. He's got the Quran and all the other writings that go along with that. But I want to talk today a little bit about Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith is the founder of Mormonism. And did you know this? <clears throat> Joseph Smith shows up unannounced, like there's no Old Testament passage that says that this guy's going to come. Like he can't be like Jesus and be like, hey man, you believe the Bible, then you're going to believe me because it, it said I was coming. There's none of that. There's none of that. But according to Mormonism, there is some of that. So what I want to do right now is compare, compare this evidence for Jesus with the evidence for Joseph Smith. The following information I'm about to give you comes from LDS.org. That's the official Mormon website, LDS.org. And it's, uh, it's in an article called Prophecies in the Bible about Joseph Smith. So this is supposed to be proof that Joseph Smith was foretold in the Bible. It was written by a guy named George Horton Jr. George A. Horton Jr. You remember back when he heard of who? <laughs> just kidding. I'm just sorry. I'm just... I'm a dork. Um, but he's, he, he passed away in the two, just in, I don't know, a few years back he passed away. But he's, he was the associate director of BYU, Brigham Young University, which is a, a Mormon university. Well-respected, actually, university. Um, he was a director of the BYU Jerusalem Center for Near Eastern Studies. Okay, so he was a smarty pants guy, right? Leg legitimate smart dude. And let me read to you what he said in his article. Um, and I go ahead, read the article. It's interesting stuff. But he says this, I'm sometimes asked... If there's any evidence in the Bible that foretells the divine calling of the prophet Joseph Smith, I usually reply that the only sure evidence of the prophet Joseph Smith's divine calling is a personal witness from the Holy Ghost. That's when God just tells you, no, trust me, he's the prophet. Still, there are many references to the prophet in the Bible that confirm that testimony. And this, your ears perk up. You're like, wait, what? I read the Bible, I don't remember that. Here's the first prophecy he mentions. It's from Genesis chapter 50, verse 33. Let me read it to you. And that seer will I bless. Seer meaning uh, someone who can, like, has, he's a prophet, basically, right? That seer I will bless, and they that seek to destroy him shall be confounded. For this promise I give unto you. For I will remember you from generation to generation, and his name shall be called Joseph. And it shall be after the name of his father. In other words, he'll be a junior. And Joseph Smith was a junior. And he shall be like unto you, unto, unto uh, Joseph, uh, the other Joseph in, in Genesis. For the thing which the Lord shall bring forth by his hand shall bring my people unto salvation. Now, how many of you guys, you don't remember reading that in Genesis? Anybody? I'm like, man, I know I read Genesis. Like, I didn't stop at chapter 5 like some people. Like, I read the whole book. <laughs> you know? I don't remember reading that. Well... This first example of, of Bible prophecy about Joseph Smith from LDS.org comes from the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. In the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, there's several extra verses at the end of Genesis chapter 50, which is why you can't find Genesis chapter 50 verse 33 in your Bible. It ends several verses earlier than that. Now, we have got a lot of ancient data about Genesis, and there is no manuscript that has this text in it. But Joseph Smith, in Mormon theology, one of his giftings, and this was part of the gifting of tongues, in Mormonism, gift of tongues is different than it is in a biblical sense, but in Mormonism, he had the gift of tongues, like he could translate things that weren't even there. And that was part of his gift of tongues. Like he could look at one Egyptian letter and translate a whole paragraph off that one letter, even if the letter just meant like dog, like he could translate a whole paragraph of stuff from Abraham 
from that one letter. Um, this is why Mormonism is currently shrinking. Because it's so outlandish. And um, the only thing that really keeps you Mormon is not finding out about this stuff. Um, now, that's strike one, I think. <laughs> strike one. <laughs> this, is, this is true. This is the other one. Now, I, I've, I've encountered Mormon missionaries and, and gone back and forth and discussed friendly, you know, God, godly, kind discussions back and forth with them, trying to hopefully open their, their minds to things that they hadn't noticed. But in Ezekiel 37, there's another prophecy, supposedly about, um, re regarding Joseph Smith, but it's about the Book of Mormon in particular. And uh, I can read it to you. It's going to talk about two sticks, and one of the sticks is supposed to be the Bible, and the other stick is the Book of Mormon, and they're brought together, and that's when like good things happen. So Ezekiel 37, uh, verse 16 through 23. I'm going to start at just 16 and 17. This is the part they quote. As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it, for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them one to another for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. Obviously, the Bible and the Book of Mormon. Or not. Um, supposedly, that's what these two sticks are. And this is an Old Testament prophecy that's supposed to declare that. Now, remember, this is something we repeat in the evidence for the Bible series is you always want people's best examples, right? Because if their best examples are terrible examples, then they're probably wrong. <laughs> so these are the best examples he's got. Um, now, let, let me just read on. Notice that the sticks were, one is for Judah and the children of Israel. The other one is for Ephraim and the, and the house of Israel and his companions. So let's read on. Verse 18. Let's just put it in context. And when the children of your people speak to you saying, will you not show us what you mean by these? Oh, some clarity. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and will join them with it, with the stick of Judah and make them one stick and they will be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Then say to them, thus says the Lord God, surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they've gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations, they shall neither ever, uh, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. You getting the idea of what the sticks represent? The two, the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. They were split after David's death in Solomon, well, after Solomon's death, when Rehoboam took over, they got split into two kingdoms, and he's saying they will be brought together at a later time. Um, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they've sinned, and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Strike two. This is not about the Book of Mormon. This isn't about a book at all. This is about the tribes of Israel being united together as one, instead of a divided kingdom. Strike two. Okay. Then... Um, he goes on, Horton uh, goes on to give us another example of prophecy of Joseph Smith. And this comes from Isaiah chapter 29, verses 20 through 22. The Joseph Smith translation. Again. He says, it's clear to see this in the Joseph Smith translation. And it also can be found in the King James Version, but not as clear. I'm going to read to you both versions. I'll read you the Joseph Smith translation and the New King James um, just to make it a little easier. 
But here we go, Isaiah 29, verse 20 through 22. I want you to try to put this in your mind. I'll read Joseph Smith's version, and then we'll read an actual translation. Um, Wherefore it shall come to pass, that the Lord God will deliver again the book and the words thereof to him that is not learned. That would be Joseph Smith, an unlearned person. And the man that is not learned shall say, I am not learned. That's convenient. Then shall the Lord God say unto him, The learned shall not read them, for they have rejected them, and I am able to do mine own work. Wherefore thou shalt read the words which I shall give unto thee. It's a little bit convoluted, but but the unlearned is supposed to be Joseph Smith, right? Now you're just going, okay, is this just like, did he tweak a couple words? And the answer is no. He like fabricated whole verses. Let me read it to you in the actual, what the actual text says. For the terrible one is brought to nothing, the scornful one is consumed, and all who watch for iniquity are cut off, who make a man an offender by a word, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and turn aside the just by empty words. So it's, it's rebuking injustice in the land. Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now grow pale, because God's going to be on Jacob's side. There's very few words even in common between these two translations because Joseph Smith was just trying to write himself into the Bible, uh, which is incredibly obvious. So that, I'll call that strike three. There's a couple other uh, things he does as well where you know there's the branch of the Lord and, and his resting place shall be glorious and all that, which is a prophecy of Christ. And they go, well, the branch is Joseph. And it's, uh, it just gets really... I tried to give you the better examples. <laughs> but yes, um, why do I show that to you? How do I know uh, Muhammad isn't really the prophet? How do I know Joseph Smith isn't really a prophet of God? How do I know Joe Schmo knocking on my door tomorrow, having a new revelation from God, isn't the... Where in the scriptures does it tell me I should be looking for you? The Old Testament creates massive anticipation for Jesus. He shows up and fulfills what was written. What are we waiting on now? We're waiting on some things to happen in a book called Revelation. We're not waiting for a new prophet with a new revelation. We're waiting for Christ to return. We're waiting for God to finish, finish everything. So we have no expectation for this. In fact, you know, what prophets we ultimately expect are many false prophets. That's what Jesus warned us about. And, um, and Jesus, of course, wasn't the only, the last prophet ever. During the end times, there's, of course, going to be specific prophets and stuff that come. But, uh, but anyway, I thought that would be an interesting thing to do. Now, remember how uh, Horton started the article? Can I read to you his opening paragraph again? And now you'll see why it's so important. I'm sometimes asked if there is any evidence in the Bible that foretells the divine calling of the prophet Joseph Smith. I usually reply that the only sure evidence of the prophet Joseph Smith's divine calling is a personal witness from the Holy Ghost. In Mormon theology is deeply, deeply committed to this idea that you actually know the Book of Mormon's the, the Word of God. You actually know that Joseph Smith is the prophet because you get a strong sensation that he is. Yeah, they used to call it a burning in their bosom. Um, that's a little bit dated term, so sometimes they're starting to shift the terminology of it a little bit. But yeah, but that's the thing, the burning in your bosom. And then they'll come to your door and knock, knock, knock. Hey, you know, um, can we just pray together? You know, and, and they quote James, you know, like, you know, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Which, of course, this is not asking for wisdom. This is, that's a total misquote of the, of the passage, misapplication of it, too. And then these strangers who come to you telling you that everything you know about God and Jesus is just a little wrong. 
and they have this new revelation, this new book, and you're a little freaked out by the whole experience. And then they put their hands on you and they pray. And you're just kind of freaked out and your adrenaline's pumping and you're, and then they're like, see, that proves it. That proves it. That feeling, that proves it. Except no feeling can overturn the plain teachings of scripture. I mean, clearly, clearly it's not, it's not the right gospel. It's not the right gospel. So it must be wrong. I mean, Galatians says, if anyone comes to you preaching a different gospel than what you've already received here, let him be accursed. So no feeling is going to undo the plain teachings of Scripture, and that's a safe place for us to be. So uh, Paul goes on. Uh, let's see. Oh, how far have we gotten so far? Are we doing pretty good on time? Let's see. All right, verse, verse uh, 2. <laughs> I knew this would happen. Okay. Let me, we'll just go a little bit further. I, I knew, I, I knew there was a hopeless, it was a hopeless endeavor. Um, so verse two, just to re- read it again. This gospel was promised before through his holy prophets in the holy scriptures. Super important thing. It actually gives like legitimate verification of who Jesus is. And Paul will continue to bring this throughout the whole book of Romans. Prophecy, prophecy, prophecy. It'll be fun to see how he quotes the Old Testament. Verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God, with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. That's Jesus, right? He is, according to the flesh, according to his physical body, he's a son of David. That's important because David was the king of Israel, and the the messianic prophecies, the kingly prophecies, always connect to David, to David, to David, to David. Um, And so... Uh, he's the son of David. He's the inheritor of the messianic kingly prophecies. But also, he was he was not born, but he is simply declared to be the son of God according to the Spirit. So here we have the deity and the humanity of Christ both being taught together. Now, sometimes people say, as far as theology goes, Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Um, I don't recommend that you use that phraseology. Not because it's wrong, as much as because it doesn't exactly make sense. Um, when you're 100% of something and then 100% of something else, it starts to be a little confusing. So actually, a lot of godly people have really struggled with how to express this simply and carefully about who Jesus is. And this is the terminology that, that many believers have fallen towards, and I think it's very good, which is to say that Jesus is truly God and truly man. And I think that's a very good way to put it. He's truly God and truly man. Um, this is not to say Jesus is less than 100% man or less than 100% God. It's just to say that that's a, okay, what percent human are you? I, I, I don't know. It's just kind of weird. When you use percentiles on things, it just gets weird. <laughs> so, but he's, he's fully God or truly God and truly man. Um, yes, he's God, the God, the, the one who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. Yes, he's man. A, a, a genuinely, truly, he's human. I think that's a good way to put it. Um, but no, notice this. This is where um, some people will, will try to say that Jesus became the Son of God at the resurrection. Which is strange because he claimed to be the Son of God before the resurrection. Um, so that doesn't make sense. But notice the passage here. It says he was declared, not he became. He was declared to be the Son of God. The resurrection is a big announcement to the world. See, he's mine. That's my son. That's the Son of God. It's, it's, it's evidence. It's meant to prove something. And even today, 2,000 years later, I'm amazed at how much evidence there still is to affirm the, the historicity of the resurrection of Christ. That blows me away. It's so encouraging. 
You know, when you, when you just look at the evidence, the historical case, and I have a, a, I like to plug my own videos, I guess. I have a video on this, if you guys want to watch it, on the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. And um, we talk about, it's like a thought exercise. It's like, let's just, let's just sort of step outside of our Christian worldview for just a moment. Well, not entirely, but, but let's just not assume things. Let's just say, look at the historical evidence and what direction does it point? That's, that's the, uh, the thing we do there. So we look at the evidence that the historians agree on largely, which is that there was a death by crucifixion. Jesus was killed by crucifixion, that ladies, women found that there was really an empty tomb, that the empty tomb is a historical thing, um, that there were independent eyewitness testimonies of people saying that they really saw him and touched him and handled him. There were several independent eyewitness accounts of that, that there was violence endured by the apostles, which would make a liar give up the lie if you're just going to die for it. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Just kidding. And then, of course, we had the enemies of Christ converted. And so we went through all five of those historical things and then say, okay, what's the best explanation of all that? Well, the resurrection is, unless, of course, you assume there is no resurrection possible, in which case you're arguing what's called circular reasoning. Resurrection is impossible, and therefore it didn't happen. Okay, well, all you have to do is uh, allow for the possibility of the resurrection to see the reality of the resurrection, I think. So um, another way to put it is, if Christ really had risen, what would it look like looking back in time? Well, it would look exactly the way it looks. You know, if it was a hoax, it would look differently. So I, I just love that that evidence has lasted, and it's convinced many people to turn their lives to Christ and put their faith in Christ. And he's declared to be the son of God by the resurrection. And there's people who went in to look at the evidence and then said, wow, look at the resurrection. He's the son of God. And then they put their faith in Christ. And so I love it. The philosophy and the, the theology that Paul is giving us is really deep. It's really, it's, it's some bulletproof stuff. It's really neat. Um, I'm trying to decide if I should go a little bit further or if, no, we'll go a little further. We'll go verse five through whom, through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Through Jesus, specifically, Paul and, uh, and his companions have received apostleship. Notice he calls it grace and apostleship, but that's because Paul always saw his calling and ministry as God's grace to him. He did not think, wow, I'm so qualified, that's why I'm doing this ministry. He thought, wow, I'm so graced by God. That's why I'm doing this ministry. This should encourage you if you want to serve the Lord. You do not serve the Lord because you are the best of Christians. Pastors are not the best of Christians. They have a particular gift set that, that has them like speaking publicly or things like that, explaining, expounding the scriptures. This does not make me a better Christian, nor does it come from me being a better Christian. As those of you who know me are well aware. <laughs> but but it, it comes from the grace of God. Like, wow, Lord. I get to do this. You gave me the, the ability to serve you in some capacity, and that was grace. And that was so Paul, I love it. You'll see it consistently. He always talks about his ministry as God's grace unto him. And may this be a word for those serving in ministry that would call their ministry a burden from the Lord. Paul, who suffered beating beatings and uh, and and torture and being chased out and made fun of and mocked and just all sorts of hatred. He called it grace that he got to do this for the Lord. And yet there are some people who, because, well, they showed up that one time and they didn't have to, and it's such a burden. And I'm, I'm sorry, but God does not want us to be namby-pambies when it comes to serving the Lord. Like, like, 
become a little bit more Pauline, you know, like a little bit more like Paul. This is, this is a grace unto us. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. That's a great thing. Thank you, God, to let me serve you. Whether it causes me pain, I will just say glory to Christ. Glory to Christ that I got, I get to suffer for his namesake. And then he says that the grace and apostleship was for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Obedience to the faith. And every time in my own studies of looking at every instance of the term, not faith, but the faith throughout the New Testament, it's always referring to, from what I understand, the doctrines we believe, not just the presence of belief in a person's heart. So I have faith. I have genuine trust in these truths. But when I have the faith, I have the actual truths themselves. So you could think of like a what we believe statement. What we believe, that's the faith. So he's received grace and apostleship because God's agenda is that the what we believe gets spread throughout the entire world. And that's, that, is a, that is God's plan. So who are you? Who are you to tell other people that their beliefs are wrong? That's a weird question. Who am I? To deny God, who says that he wants the faith spread throughout all the nations of the world. It's not on me. It's on him. It's on him. And so the faith, the things we believe, the specific things, God, Jesus, salvation, morality, eternal destinies, all that kind of stuff. And it should go to all nations. It's universal. And this is interesting because it was a fact that the church was very slow to get. Paul seemed to get a little quicker than some people, but they were very slow to get it. And if you read the book of Acts, you can see how we're doing this Sunday mornings with the teens how hesitant the Jews were to accepting the idea that the Gentiles could be saved by faith without becoming Jews. They were really slow to receive it. But Paul's like declaring it like, hey, it's all nations. Obedience to the faith through his name. It's just Jesus, these doctrines, salvation. Like that's to everyone, to everyone and every, everywhere. And uh, there's nobody, <clears throat> there's nobody uh, exempt from that. I remember talking to a pastor one time, a pastor whose name you would know, I think. And we were talking about... Um, uh, Am for Peace, Pastor Gary's um, uh, uh, Ambassadors for Peace. What, what would you call that? Uh, thing. <laughs> foundation. That's it. The foundation. Yeah, Religious Freedom Foundation. So they, they, I was telling him about this and we're, you know, how they're trying to open the doors for the gospel and for, for people to be able to, to discuss the things that they believe and all this stuff. And this pastor just like cut me off and wasn't interested. And he goes, you know what? They'll never change. The Muslims will never change. And I just, I was just dumbfounded. Like I didn't even know what, I just stopped. I didn't know what to say back because all I'm thinking is your ancestors were pagans. And someone brought them the gospel and you got saved. What is wrong with, I, I just, it was really bothering to me. You know, I'm like, what's wrong with you? What happened to the obedience of all nations to his name? We want to go every single place we can to every soul we can with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's the only reason why you're saved is because someone did that. Someone had the boldness and the courage to go out there and be like, you know what? If God could save me, God could save them. Oh, but they're, but they're different. They're a special kind of human that can't be saved. <laughs> like, oh, you know, anyway. Um, so we, 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 we don't have time for that. <laughs> All nations, for his name's sake. All nations. And then that, and this is where it all closes. It's um, to all nations, for his name. This is a, a really neat concept. Why is it so important that I spread the gospel? Well, because God wants to save people. And people are, after all, the reason for creation. 
I'm not the purpose of creation. God is. I'm, the, I'm part of the creation, but I'm not the reason for it. And even my salvation, ultimately, or my rejection of Christ, ultimately is going to simply bring glory to God's name. It's for his name, it says in verse 5. For his name. Man's salvation is not actually the biggest thing out there. God's glory is. This is something that's really important for us to get. Because if I go out as a missionary or even just sharing with friends or family and they reject the gospel of Christ and they spit on me and they don't, and they don't care and they blow it off, God is still glorified. And I'm like, mission is still accomplished. Because the greatest tragedy is not a man rejecting Jesus. The greatest tragedy is God not getting glory. It's for his name. I live for his name. He is the chief thing. He is, he is love God with all your heart, all your soul, your mind, your strength, all you've got. That's the thing. It's his name is the highest thing. And if we get that right in our hearts, I think that it really changes the way we see a whole lot of stuff in our lives. A whole lot of stuff. And I came to a point in my Christian life where I was like, Lord, whatever trial, whatever thing you want me to go through, just let it be for your glory and let me, let me not uh, make you look bad. <laughs> you know, let me, let me honor you in this. So here's the question I want to I leave you guys with, with this concept in mind, his name. What's more important to you? You being helped or God being glorified? What's more important to you? You being helped or God being glorified? And then we get confronted with the reality of loving God more than yourself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would continue to get into our hearts and minds. We pray that as we go through Romans, you be just divinely uh, using the studies, just what verse we happen to be in, what, what topics happen to come up. Use that for just to meet people where they're at. Just to meet us where we're at and, and, and just get our hearts and minds right. It's so amazing how you do that with just almost random portions of your word that just so apply so directly into what we're doing and what, what's going through our lives. We pray, Father, now that we would be equipped to share the gospel for your name. Yes, because we want people saved. Absolutely. We don't want to diminish that but we really don't want to diminish the glory of your name. Jesus, that we would proclaim your truth and that we would stand for you and that we would honor you and that we'd be pleasing to you because all things were made by you and for you. So help us to, uh, to see that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.